welcome to episode two of The Underground Christian, where we're looking at the question, how are we to live in a contemporary society like today as Christians? Last week, we talked about discernment, truth, lies, pattern changes. If the patterns change, you know, thinking like an intelligence analyst, if the patterns change, uh, patterns of life, then something may not be right. It may be something that we need to pay a little closer attention to. We have a pandemic, or at least what's called a pandemic. We have masks that we have to wear everywhere. Now, the masks have gone away for a little while, but they're coming back. And if you watch the foreign countries around us, they are a precursor of what's likely to happen here in the United States. The masks are coming back. There's a tremendous debate about whether the masks have any actual medical utility, and I think the consensus is that they do not have any medical usefulness. Why? Because the particle size of the virus that we're talking about is far smaller than even the N95 mask. Now, the original excuse for why we're wearing masks is that it prevented the spread of spit from contaminating surfaces. But it has since come out that the transmission is respiratory. The contact has, there's been no demonstrated transmission of the disease through contact of surfaces. And so that excuse really doesn't apply. So why do we have to still continue to wear these cloth masks? Social distancing, that's not something we've ever done before. That's a pattern change for sure. Sheltering at home, I can't, I've been alive for a long time. I can't remember ever being told we need to shelter at home. Uh, government pushing an experimental vaccine. Oh, again, there's, a, there's reasons for all of these things, but that's not something that's happened before. Election audits, I don't recall election audits of the type that we're currently experiencing. And outside of the politics and the medical situation, we have weather disasters occurring. Now, you know, weather happens all over the world every year, obviously, but not the kind of weather disasters that we've been seeing lately. Just this season, we have unprecedented heat in the northwest. We have an ongoing drought in the, in the western portion of this country. We have flooding of, uh, I hate to use this term, biblical proportions, extensive flooding in Europe and in China and in India, and in other countries. That is unlike any flooding that we've seen before. Certainly there's a lot of weather things going on. We have multi-trillion dollar spending bills. Has anybody even remembered what a budget is? I, I can't remember the last time that Congress actually passed a budget. We have spending bills. We spend money. But it's not just spending money. It's spending money at a rate and an amount that is inconceivable to most of us. We have censorship, active censorship. This is a country founded on the First Amendment of the Constitution, where we have a right to speak, we have a right to communicate, we have a right to disseminate information, a right to petition government, a right to do lots of things that have to do with the transmission of information. I have never heard the United States government before say, we need to shut down free speech because you're speaking misinformation and you're somehow threatening others by this misinformation that we're telling you is misinformation. That's not at all normal. That's something we should pay attention to. Rioting and destruction has been taking place across the country. It hasn't been in the news much lately, but it's, uh, it's still ongoing. But we had cities in America where billions of dollars in damage occurred, where thousands of people were injured, with hardly a political voice being raised on one side of the aisle in consternation or indignation. Churches shut down and burning. That's never happened before. There's obviously many things that are different now than just even a year or two ago. Things have changed. There's pattern changes. It's creating a lot of fear and uncertainty in people's futures. They're frightened. People are very scared about what's going to take place, and they're seeking normality. And in that seeking of normality, they're willing to do things that maybe they wouldn't normally do. Well, the Bible is a great resource for Christians like us to turn to because it's full of warnings about what lies ahead. Obviously, it was what lies ahead during the time that the Bible was written, but it's also what lies ahead of even this, the time that we're in now. For example, there are some general admonitions in the Bible. Ecclesiastes 9.12 says, No one knows when their hour will come. As fish are caught in a cruel net or birds are taken in a snare, so people are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. Well, this is a general admonition for Christians to pay attention to things. So let's just break it down just a little bit. Fish is a common imagery that's used in the Bible. Jesus talked a lot about fish, and he had a lot of fishermen as part of his apostles and disciples. Um, and it was a fishing community. So the, the Bible talks a lot about fish. 
case, it's talking about fish caught in a cruel net. What's a cruel net? Well, a cruel net, why is it cruel? Well, it doesn't really say, but we, we can infer if we're just going to go with the analogy for a minute. A cruel net is one that entraps fish unaware. They don't know that it's around them, and it starts to constrict them. And at some point through the murk of the water, they notice this thing that's coming at them, and they're trying to escape, and it's getting more and more crowded and difficult for them to move around as it constricts, and it slowly causes them to die. And that's kind of a cruel way for a fish to die, if you're from, you know, if you're from a fish perspective. Or birds are taken in a snare. Well, what's the difference between fish and birds? Well, uh, birds are a lot more intelligent, so they are a lot more wary than fish. Fish are pretty dumb, uh, and, you know, we don't want to be fish, and they just sort of blunder into nets. But birds are very skittish, and they're very concerned about the environment around them because they're fragile. So the birds take some time to look at things and to examine things, but they're caught in a snare. So how did they get caught in a snare? Well, birds know what a snare is, believe it or not. They can, they can tell if you catch a bird in a snare, there's very few other birds that will go near that snare again. You catch them by tricking them, by disguising the snare as something, by making it appear harmless when it's actually something very harmful. So they're tricked and they fall into a snare. And the author of Ecclesiastes is saying, hey, nobody knows when their time is going to come, but some of them are going to be like fish caught in a cruel net and birds caught in a snare. It's going to come suddenly and unexpectedly, and boy, are they going to be surprised. So the Bible has some warnings for us to pay attention to. Well, why did God say this? God wrote the Bible through the authors. Why, why would he say this to us? Would it, is it to frighten us? No, it's to enlighten us and prepare us. That's why he does it. He's doing it for a reason. Now, in Isaiah, in chapter 47, verse 11, there's a similar passage that says, But evil will come on you, which you will not know how to charm away. And disaster will fall on you, for which you cannot atone. And destruction, about which you do not know, will come on you suddenly. The passage is referring to what we would call from Revelation, Mystery Babylon. It's talking about the fall of Babylon. Mystery Babylon being the Babylon of the future, that we don't really know exactly what it is, but it's the world system, essentially. And it's talking about the setting in Isaiah is, is the destruction of that system. This is a warning to them, but it can apply to us also. How does it apply to us? Well, it's talking about deception. Something happening that they can't really control. In Ephesians 5, verses 5 to 7, Paul tells us, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Here Paul is creating a comparison of opposites. He's comparing an immoral, impure, greedy person with a Christian who's not supposed to have those characteristics. He's setting this up in a way that says those people who are not Christians, who are immoral, impure, and greedy, those idolaters, are going to create a situation where you're going to be deceived or where you're susceptible to deception. And what is the deception? He says with empty words. What does that mean? It means with words that are essentially lies. Now, they're not obvious lies. They're plausible lies. And therein is the problem. We hear words that sound good and plausible, but they actually are filled with lies. And those lies are things that cause us to do what, according to this passage? To partner with those evil people. See, what God is doing is he's saying, you've got to be very careful, Christian, because it's very easy to be deceived by words and by people, and by status, and by position, but by believing what you're being told and being deceived, you're actually partnering with those people. It's a very serious warning. This constant warning about being deceived is repeated throughout the Bible. In the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, it says, do not be deceived. In Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. In James 1, 16, do not be deceived. The same phrase, the same warning occurs repeatedly throughout scriptures. 
It's throughout the Old Testament as well. A little bit different, doesn't exactly occur in the same words, but it's the same idea. In Jeremiah 9, 6, it says, Through deceit they refuse to know me, says the Lord. It's because of deceit that we don't actually establish a relationship with God. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? A very famous passage. Who can know how desperately wicked the human heart is? It's all of our hearts. It's not a person's heart. And it fools us. It tricks us. It deceives us. We're the first ones deceived by our own heart. In Jeremiah 9.8, their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceit with its mouth. One speaks peace to his neighbor, but inwardly sets an ambush for him. This is outward, obvious lies, or maybe not obvious to the person who's being lied to, but obvious to the person who's doing the lying. This is using lies in order to achieve nefarious ends. Whenever in Hebrew a phrase is repeated or a concept is repeated, they didn't have exclamation points. That's how they emphasize the importance of the concepts. So when we see the same kind of idea continuously recurring throughout Scripture about deception, it's a very important concept God wants to get across to us. In Matthew 24, 4, it says, Jesus said, See to it that, see to it, that's a command, see to it that no one misleads you. That's deception. He's saying, don't be deceived. What do we do with this information? We touched on this in the first episode. We have to understand that deception involves lies, and in order to discern lies, we have to know something about truth. Well, what's truth? A very famous person in the Bible once asked that question to Jesus. What is truth? Well, Jesus gave us that answer, not directly to Pilate, who asked the question, but he did give us the answer in John 4.16. He said, I am truth. And who is Jesus? Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is God, and the Bible was written by God through people, and so everything in the Bible is the Word of God, and it's true, and so therefore the Bible is truth. That's the way we look at it as Christians. We stand with Jesus, so we stand with truth. Who stands against Jesus? Satan stands against Jesus. What does Satan mean? It means adversary. Satan is a commander. He's commanding forces that are aligned against Jesus, against God. He leads enemy forces against God. Now, something that we need to talk about are enemy forces, because a lot of Christians have never been in the military. They don't really, they don't really have firsthand experience about it. The Bible uses a lot of militaristic terms, even though, you know, Jesus wasn't a military officer or anything like that. But nevertheless, he uses military terms in the Bible. Commanders of forces train their forces. And the forces reflect the knowledge, the training, and the abilities of their commanders. So what are the characteristics of Satan? It's important that we know this because that's what we're going to be looking for in the people who are representing him on the earth. All right, one of the characteristics in John 8, 44, I'll just read the passage. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Here, murderer from the beginning stands out at the beginning of the passage. Anyone who is aligned with Satan, one way or the other, is going to promulgate murder. Murder is the taking of innocent life. Also, he's a liar and he's the father of it, and all he does when he talks is he lies. It's everything he's out of his mouth is a lie. That's an important characteristic of Satan's followers. They lie. They deceive. Hence the constant admonition against being, being wary of deception. In John 10.10, 10, it says, The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. In addition to murdering and lying, these people will steal. What are they going to steal? Well, they could steal any number of things. They could steal your happiness. They could steal your property. They could steal your future. They could steal your children. There's all kinds of things they can steal, but they're going to take things that don't belong to them and kill again. It says they're going to kill and destroy. So kill shows up once again. And then destruction. Destruction is not the death of human beings, but the, the death essentially of material things. They're going to destroy material things. In 2 Corinthians 2.11, we get a little bit more information about Satan's forces. And it picks this up in the middle of a sentence, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. So here we get deception. This is a direct reference to deception. He's trying to outwit us. He's trying to deceive us. 
it's a it's like a lie except there's some truth mixed in and that makes it very difficult to perceive deception and then we are not unaware of his schemes it's saying that we shouldn't be confused unaware of his schemes means that we would be confused and confusion makes us uncertain about the truth it makes us uncertain where the truth lies so we should make sure that we're not confused by understanding what's going on in 2 Corinthians 11:14-15 there's some additional characteristics that are discussed for satan transforms himself into an angel of light Therefore, it's no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. Here we get a few more characteristics of the army of Satan and the way they operate. They are experts in camouflage. They make something extremely dangerous look harmless or beneficial. They hide the danger. He transforms himself into an angel of light. Well, the implication is that he's an angel of darkness, and so he's just creating camouflage for what he really is. They infiltrate. Therefore, it's no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. They infiltrate trusted positions in trusted organizations. That's what ministers of righteousness mean. These are people who we run across every single day. They try to get into important elevated positions. They try to have influence. And they act treacherously. Because why? Because it's all a lie. When they act treacherously, that's fraud, but with a trusting friend or an associate. People who trust them, they actually are working against them. That's treachery. And this concept of ministers, those are Satan's forces, and they're going to reflect something or all of these characteristics, some or all of them. Jesus said to us, you will know them by their fruits. He's saying you have to discern who they are, not by what they say, but by what they do. What do they produce? What are the things that come from what they say or what they do? So this concept of deception is very important. Now, this is not new. Obviously, there's been a lot of discussion about deception. One of the old plays that you most people have at least some passing knowledge about is the play Peter Pan. And in Peter Pan, without going through the whole play, there is a character, Captain Hook, who is trying to deceive some boys because he doesn't like boys and he wants to kill these boys. And he cooks up a plan as to how to do that. We're going to play a little passage from it, uh, not because I'm stealing people's music, but because it illustrates some important points. Let's hear what Captain Hook has to say about deception. I must think. Inspire me. Play, you dogs. What tempo, Captain? Tempo, tempo. A tango. A tango. <laughs> Unrip your plan, Captain. To cook a cake quite large and fill each layer in between with icing mixed with poison till it turns a tempting green. We'll place it near the house, just where the boys are sure to come. And being greedy, they won't care to question such a plum. The boys who have no mother sweet, no one to show them their mistake, won't know it's dangerous to eat. So damp and rich a cake. And so, before the winking of an eye, those boys will eat that poison cake. And one by one, they'll die. One of the things I'm worried about is that we're being fed cake here in America. How can we tell if we're being fed this kind of cake? Well, fruits. What fruits are being produced by the people who are making this cake? You know, Captain Hook and his followers were not nice people. It was obvious when you looked at them, they were not nice people. Okay, it's a play. But the same principle is in effect in the real world. We're to look at the fruits of what people are producing, not the wrapping themselves in righteousness element, the transforming themselves into ministers of righteousness. No, we're supposed to look at what they're producing in order to evaluate who they are. We need to look at the characteristics of the people 
who are in charge. We need to think like an intelligence analyst and look beyond what it is that they're saying. Look at our political, economic media, and military leaders to see what kind of lives they're leading. Are they leading lives of lies, or are they leading lives of righteousness and purity? Now, there's a difference between lies and mistakes, and I want to make this clear. Lies are deliberate distortions of truth. It's knowingly distorting what's true or knowingly conveying information that is untrue. Mistakes are made because of wrong information or wrong interpretations. People all make mistakes. So just because a person says something that's not correct or says something that's wrong, it doesn't mean that they're lying. It just could mean that they're mistaken and we need to be able to discern the difference so that we don't mischaracterize people. Now this week, with regard to this pandemic, a lawsuit was filed, a federal lawsuit between America's frontline doctors and the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. And obviously there's a lot of other participants on both sides of this lawsuit. It was filed July 19th and it alleges the following. And these are pretty serious allegations within this lawsuit. I'm going to read down through a few of them because they are alleging that there is deception going on. Now, it's just an allegation. This is news in that it's been filed. There have been no trial. This hasn't been proven. But the fact that there are allegations, we need to pay attention to that because especially when it concerns changes in patterns, we need to see if there's anything to it. So here's some of the allegations. You may or may not have heard about these things. On February 4th, 2020, it's setting up the background now for the lawsuit. Department of Health and Human Services Secretary Xavier Becerra, Becerra declared SARS-CoV-2 created a public health emergency. Okay, so that was a, that's a fact. That happened. That was the date that it happened. That's who did it. That's what they did. They declared a public health emergency. The declaration of a public health emergency remains in force. Why is that important? An emergency is necessary to distribute medication on emergency use authorization that will be abbreviated EUA from here on out basis. So this vaccine that we've been receiving is only being distributed on an emergency use authorization basis and that only exists because of the public health emergency that was declared. The lawsuit claims that the EUA is illegal because there is no real emergency based on the defendant, that's DHHS, based on their own data. What do they mean by that? They mean that the severity of the crisis never rose to the level of a pandemic. And as a little background, this is not in the lawsuit, this is just a little bit of a background. The two best known pandemics of history, the first was the Black Death pandemic of 1346 to 1353. And it killed, you know, records are a little bit hard to come by, but it killed an estimated 75 to 200 million people, maybe a fifth to a quarter of the entire world's population. By today's standards, that would be somewhere between one and two billion people. The flu pandemic of 1918, which is the most recent major pandemic that we had, 1918 to 1919, it killed 50 million people in one year. Those are the scales, and that was with a much smaller population than we have now. Those are the scales of the events that give rise to um, pandemics. And we're back to the lawsuit. It alleges that SARS-CoV-2 has an overall survivability rating uh, rate of 99.8% globally. It has a 99.97 survivability rating for persons under age 70, which is very similar to the regular flu. And it, even these data, though, are inflated. Because on March 24, 2020, the DHHS changed the rules for coroners and others to determine the cause of death on death certificates. And the change applied exclusively for COVID-19. What they did was they required that COVID-19 be listed as the cause of death even when, in the opinion of the person registering the death certificate or the attending physician, it was not the cause of death if they had any symptoms or any indications that they had COVID-19. DHHS statistics show 95% of deaths classified as COVID-19 deaths involve an average of four additional comorbidities. In other words, most of these people would have died anyway. So what they're alleging is this was created. This whole basis for the emergency use authorization, the basis for the vaccine, was created. It's saying that the deaths were exacerbated 
Now, how are they exacerbated? Well, one way is by putting elderly patients who are ill with the disease in confined quarters with a lot of other elderly patients, nursing homes, not giving them medications that were available, and waiting until they either die or get hospitalized, where most of them died once they were hospitalized. To a Christian, what it should do is it should raise some questions. What are we being told? Who's telling it to us? Who's telling the truth? Who's not telling the truth? And why are they, if they're not telling the truth, why are they not telling the truth? Why are they doing this? What's the purpose behind it? Other allegations are that the PCR tests were and are operated differently for COVID-19 than for other diseases. The PCR tests are the tests that we take in order to determine who has COVID-19 and who doesn't. They are operated, or at least some of them are operated, under their own EUA, Emergency Use Authorization. Again, they haven't been fully approved by the Food and Drug Administration or any other regulatory agency. They are just operated on an emergency use basis. That may reflect on their accuracy. Manufacturer inserts in the test kits, these are for the PCR tests, state that they should not be used to diagnose COVID-19. But we're using them to diagnose COVID-19. The cycles of the test, and when these tests are run, they utilize something called cycles, and, and each cycle increases the sensitivity of the test. At some point, the cycles become so high that the data that's being returned isn't useful. A French government-funded study shows that at, the 35 cycle, at 35 cycles, the test produces false positives of up to 95%. Well, how does that work? Well, think of it as a microscope that keeps, or even a telescope that keeps zooming in further and further and further. What we're looking for is an automobile. But as you continue to zoom in, you're in a junkyard and you've got little automobile parts lying around. You've got an axle, you've got a tire, you've got a windshield wiper blade. And you keep zooming in closer and closer and closer and you identify a windshield wiper blade. And you count that as an automobile because it's a part of an automobile. You can have fragments of these viruses without having the disease, without having the actual virus themselves. And so what, by increasing these cycles, what you're ending up doing is you're actually detecting just these fragments, not the entire COVID-19. You don't actually have the disease. You just have these fragments. You were sick with some kind of a coronavirus at some point in the past, and you still have these fragments that, you, that are being detected in these tests. At 35 cycles, you're up to a 95% error rate. All major PCR tests used in the U.S. require cycles from 35 to 45 for COVID-19. What does that tell you? It should say most of those detections are false positives. Early in the pandemic, the asymptomatic spread of the virus was used by DHHS to justify elevating these cycles and many of the control measures that they implemented. They used this idea that people who didn't exhibit any symptoms of an illness could still transmit the illness, and therefore we needed to find all these little fragments in order to isolate them and keep them away from everybody else. Was that a rational thing to do? Well, I don't know. Let's examine some of the complaint a little bit further. On 6-7-20, Dr. Maria von Kirchhoff, head of the World Health Organization's Emerging Diseases and Zoonasis Unit, said asymptomatic spread was very rare. This is in June of, tw of 2020. This is just a few months after the start of the pandemic. You had the WHO representative saying this is very rare. A recent study in Wuhan, China, involving 10 million residents, found a complete absence of asymptomatic transmission in the population. Doctors have been saying almost from the beginning, respiratory viral pathogens are not spread by contact. In other words, you know, the little spit particles landing on a surface is not how people are getting sick in a viral transmission. It's just from the viral particles, which cannot be stopped by a mask. They cannot, at least most types of masks, they cannot be stopped by a piece of cloth hanging over your face. And yet we still, today, have governments mandating that we go around and wearing these pieces of cloth over our face. So the question is, are the EUA vaccinations justified? Or is it justified to start administering on a worldwide basis a vaccine, we'll call it a vaccine, a, an injection of some type that hasn't been fully tested, hasn't gone through the entire testing process on an emergency basis based upon all of these problems that led up to the declaration of the emergency. The question really is, were people lied to in order to induce a panic and a fear for some purpose? We have to, again, think like an intelligence analyst. 
here are pattern changes. These are not, what has happened over the last 18 months has not been normal. And what continues to happen now is not normal. We have not seen the media and the government in the past use social shaming and threatening of individuals who question the government narrative. The, the names that they've used, or these you've heard all of these, science deniers. Well, nobody who is questioning the data is a science denier, or almost nobody. Anti-vaxxers. There are anti-vaxxers. There are people who have reasons for being against vaccinations. And I'm not going to use it as a pejorative against them because they might have some very good reasons for being against vaccinations. But every just because you question something that you're being told does not make you an anti-vaxxer. Spreaders of misinformation. Well, who's making these declarations of what's true and what's false? And how are we going to figure that out? I've always said every tyranny on earth has to control the flow of information. You cannot speak freely in a ty tyrannical situation because that doesn't enable them to control the narrative and thereby doesn't enable them to control people. It also doesn't enable them to lie and get away with it because when you can, when you can speak freely, people can exchange information and the truth can eventually come out. People who have resisted the government narrative have been declared as dangerous and uneducated in needing of re-education. These are some of the most educated people in America, uh, but they need re-education. They are a threat to public health. This is just on CNN this week. They're a threat to public health and they have to be stopped. They have to be stopped. There are demands now out there in the media for people who don't want to even just get vaccinated, much less are standing up to the official government narrative, to be confined or lose their jobs, have their travel restricted, have their professional licenses revoked. This has already happened in foreign countries where doctors who speak out and say that what's happening is not what you're being told by the government. When they speak out, they're called whistleblowers. Remember we used to, when you're persecuting a president, uh, certain presidents, uh, a whistleblower is to be absolutely believed at all times. But in a pandemic, when there are thousands of these whistleblowers coming out, they are to have their professional licenses revoked, which is what they're doing in foreign countries and threatening to do in the United States. Is that what we want to live in? That kind of society that we want to live in? Is that where Christians want to be? Is that the kind of society that is going to help Christians promote Christianity? When you are censored by deplatforming by the major media organizations, alternative media, Twitter, Facebook, email systems, YouTube, when those corporations have the ability to censor people and the ability to control speech, we don't have free speech anymore. When constant fear is used to promote the vaccines, we don't have a dialogue going on. We don't have the ability for people to make informed consent about experimental vaccines. When schools and businesses have mandates for the kids that are going into these schools that they get vaccinated, and we're not allowed to talk about it, we're not allowed to debate it, we're not allowed to, to resist it in any way, we have tyranny. That's, this is the definition of tyranny. We are living in a society that is establishing tyranny over a virus. Now, let's talk a little bit about this virus. The virus is called the novel coronavirus. It was initially promoted that way uh, at the beginning of this pandemic. You've maybe heard it called the novel coronavirus. Who called it the novel coronavirus? Well, the World Health Organization called it novel coronavirus. In a situation report, number 11, on January 31st of 2020, just after the emergence of the, of the virus. The U.S. CDC called it COVID-19, the 2019 novel coronavirus, in its research guide. Who else? The U.S. National Institute of Health. Scientists, and this is the name of an article that they put out on their website, scientists find evidence that novel coronavirus infects the mouth cells. NIH news release dated March 25th, 2021. The NIAID, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, in its news release said new images of novel coronavirus SARS-CoV-2 now available. That's their news release in February 13, 2020. Anthony Fauci, we all know who he is. Dr. Fauci, President, Joe Biden's chief medical advisor. This is a CNN politics news release. On Saturday, reiterated his belief that the natural origins theory of the novel coronavirus is still the most likely. CNN Politics dated 7-17-21. And finally, this is a quote. A panel of public health experts told a Republican-sponsored con congressional forum that the CCP virus, which is also known as the novel coronavirus, 
likely originated with a leak from China's Wuhan Institute for Virology. That's in the July 21st, 2021 Epoch Time. All right, so everybody's calling it a novel coronavirus. Is it? Is it really novel? What does novel mean? It means new. It means unique. An interview with David Martin of MCAM International would suggest that maybe it's not as unique as everybody is trying to make it out to be. Who is David Martin? Well, he's an expert in the intellectual property and economic activities of biological products, in particular products related to the coronavirus. He's an expert in the patent records, grants, and government records, and equity activities related to the coronavirus. This information is taken from his expert testimony. It, with a, it was basically an interview, and all of this information comes from him. None of this information, except for the commentary, comes from me. Now, he may be right. He may be wrong, but he has a right to speak out, and what he's saying is something that all of us need to pay attention to and need to look into because it raises some very troubling questions. As Christians, we should want to know what the truth is. So we're going to go through a series of facts that he lays out, and then we're going to kind of wrap it up with what, what, is, the, what is the conclusion based upon these facts. Fact one, SARS is a subclade of the coronavirus. So in other words, it's a type of a coronavirus. Fact two, the gene sequence of the SARS-CoV-2 virus was isolated and submitted to the International Commission on Taxonomy of Viruses, the ICTV, of the World Health Organization after its emergence in late 2019. It was declared at that time to be a novel virus by the World Health Organization. So here we go again, novelty. It's new, never seen before. Fact three, MCAM compared the reported gene sequence of the SARS-CoV-2 virus against 120 patents that had been recorded in the U.S. Patent Office and concluded that the virus has actually been in existence for at least 20 years. Hmm. Fact 4. Up to 1999, all patents related to coronavirus were for veterinary medicine. In other words, everything related to patenting information about the coronavirus, and that's a group of viruses, had something to do with animals. Fact 5. In 1999, Anthony Fauci, along with the NIAID and UNC Chapel Hill, University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, began funding and performing coronavirus research for human receptors. So up till 1999, it was only related to animal studies. But in 1999, Anthony Fauci and these U.S. government agencies suddenly started to research coronavirus for human receptors. Fact 6. On January 2, 2000, Pfizer obtained U.S. Patent 637224 that included the S-spike protein. The S-spike protein is one of the features of SARS-CoV-2 that we were told by the World Health Organization is novel. It wasn't novel in 2000. Fact 7. Patents are issued for engineered structures, not naturally occurring materials. Well, uh, I've been told subsequent to when I prepared this that that is uh, only true at, after a certain date and that prior to the date, patents were issued in some cases for naturally occurring materials. But just keep in mind that as of approximately 2014, all patents are issued for engineered structures, not naturally occurring materials. Fact 8. On April 19, 2002, NIAID obtained patent 7279327 for SARS coronavirus. That means that SARS coronavirus existed not novel, existed in 2002. If SARS coronavirus was a naturally occurring organism, as we have been told, these patents would no longer apply because according to US 35 code section 101, you cannot patent a naturally occurring substance. Now, again, I've been told that that is only applied after approximately 2014. I haven't looked into it. That's something that we need to look into. We need to look into information. After that patent was issued, the first outbreak of SARS coronavirus occurred in Asia in 2002-2003. Coincidentally, right after they patented the coronavirus, there was an outbreak, same year. Fact 11, in April of 2003, the CDC filed patent 7220852 and other derivative patents for the gene sequence of SARS coronavirus and the means of detecting it using RC-PCR. Now, you may have heard that the PCR test was recently developed to test for COVID-2, but it hasn't. It was actually around for quite a while. These patents, they would give the CDC control over the science and the messaging of COVID. The CDC said that they were seeking these patents to ostensibly ensure that everyone could research the coronavirus. Okay, but the virus sequence was already in the public domain. Remember, the entire sequence had already been published in 2002 from the NIAID filing. 
So the patent application was rejected by the U.S. Patent Office examiner because it's already in the public domain, so you can't get a patent on it. The CDC, Fact 13, the CDC pressured the Patent Office to overrule the patent examiner. They paid an appeal fine and got the patent issued in 2007, even though the virus on the patent was 99.9% .9 similar to the public domain virus, something that they weren't supposed to be able to do. Question, why would the CDC pressure someone to overrule the patent examiner? And they paid an additional, fact 14, they paid an additional fee to keep their patent application private. So they not only paid the appeal fine, they paid an additional fee to keep it private. Why would they want to do that? for something that they say they want out in the public domain. You know, when you get information that just doesn't seem to make sense, we need to look into it. These are government agencies and government officials. These are things that our Justice Department should want to look into, and not something that we should be ignoring and, and moving on with, you know, get the shot. Fact 15, three days after the CDC filed its patent application for SARS coronavirus, Sequoia Pharmaceuticals filed a patent for an antiviral treatment and control of infections by SARS coronavirus. Their patent, 7151163, was issued to Sequoia before the actual patent was finalized, the one that we had just talked about to the CDC in 2007. So prior to the finalization of the CDC patent in 2007 for the SARS coronavirus, they actually got their remedy to the SARS coronavirus patented. So here's a question. How does a pharmaceutical company apply for a patent to treat a thing that was only invented on paper or discovered on paper three days earlier and had a secrecy cover? Answer. Insider information between the CDC and Sequoia. For those of you who are familiar with legal things, I want to ask you a question. Does this qualify as a criminal conspiracy or collusion or maybe even racketeering? We might want to know who is Sequoia. Well, Sequoia, along with Ablink Pharmaceuticals, became part of the holdings of Pfizer, Crucell, and Johnson & Johnson. Fact 16, on 5608, Ablink, back to you know that same organization, filed a patent that targeted what we have been told are novel features of the SARS-CoV-2. In 2020, we're told these are novel features, specifically the polybasic cleavage site, the spike protein, and the ACE2 receptor binding domain. Again, patents are issued most of the time for engineered materials, not for naturally occurring substances. Fact 17. 73 patents were issued between 2008 and 2019 that contain all the elements that were allegedly novel to the SARS-CoV-2. And our question was, is it truly a novel virus? Based on these patent records, is it clear that this is not a novel virus and that it was being studied in a laboratory and well, it may have been an engineered virus, or it may not have been, but it's been studied in the laboratory for quite some time, the denials of Anthony Fauci notwithstanding. Fact 18. In 2016, Dr. Ralph Barrick of UNC Chapel Hill published an article stating that SARS was poised for human emergence. This is three years prior to the pandemic. Who is Ralph Barrick? Glad you asked. Ralph Barrick worked with Xi Zhengli. She's nicknamed the Batwoman of the Wuhan Institute for Virology. Remember them? The lab that did not release the virus according to the emphatic assurances of the media and Anthony Fauci. The Wuhan Institute of Virology is the lab that Anthony Fauci has repeatedly denied sending gain-of-function research funding to after a moratorium on the funding. He still denies it. Just this past week, Senator Rand Paul accused him of lying and is seeking to have him indicted for lying about this. He continues to claim that he never approved gain-of-function funding after the prohibition on it. What is gain-of-function? It refers to the process of gaining control over gene expression in a virus to make it more virulent or lethal to human hosts. Now, that's not something that could go wrong, right? We want to study how to make this is how to make it more lethal. Not find more lethal pathogens. How to make it more lethal. That's gain of function. It's an engineering exercise. Fact 21. On February 12, 2016, almost four years before the start of the COVID-2 pandemic, Peter Dejak of EcoHealth Alliance was quoted in the National Academy Press publication as saying, quote, we need to increase public understanding of the need for medical countermeasures such as a pan-coronavirus vaccine. A key driver is the media and the economics that will follow the hype. We need to use that hype to our advantage to get to the real issues. Investors will respond if they see profit at the end of the process.
From that statement, it seems that financial gain was clearly part of the motivation for what was going on. But what did he mean by the real issues? And, and who is EcoHealth Alliance? Fact 22. According to the July 1st, 2021 edition of the New York Post, EcoHealth Alliance is a company that received millions of dollars for weapons research from the Pentagon. It is a bioweapons research corporation that apparently specializes in eco-health, you know, biology and all. It does not appear that this pandemic was started by a bat spitting on a tuna sandwich in a meat market in Wuhan. It appears to a cynical intelligence analyst like myself that it may have started as a biological weapon that was engineered in a weapons laboratory over two decades, or actually several laboratories, and unleashed on the world at some point. As Christians, we're not to be deceived. And to not be deceived, we need to ask questions. We need to pay attention to what's going on in the world around us. And then we need to ask questions. We need to recognize when somebody may not be telling the truth. Let's not say they're lying. Let's just say maybe they're not telling the truth. And we need to find out maybe if they are telling the truth, if they are not telling the truth. We need to confirm whether or not they're telling the truth or not telling the truth. And if they're not telling the truth, why are they not telling the truth? It would appear that there is some deception, which is a form of lying, going on with the various parties that had something over the last 20 years to do with this development of a coronavirus. Remember, these are gain-of-function research situations where they're trying to create a virus that is more transmissible or more lethal. Who was involved in this? The CDC, the World Health Organization, the NIH, the NIAID, Anthony Fauci, Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson, Moderna, UNC Chapel Hill, EcoHealth Alliance, Wuhan Institute for Virology. Wow, looks like the tentacles run pretty wide and pretty deep. I think we need to look into why all these organizations were involved in this research. Oh, and I left one out, the Pentagon. We need to understand the world so that we can respond effectively and properly to it. That's the biblical message over and over and over. How we respond, that's a different evaluation. But the fact that we have to respond by knowing the truth is a biblical requirement. Now, here's one final biblical thought. Revelation 18. It documents the approaching end of the age. A lot of people don't like Revelation because it scares them. But, you know, it's a, it's a book in the Bible, and it's the only book in the Bible that says if you understand it, you're going to be blessed. So I think it's beneficial if we understand a little bit about it. The Holy Spirit, through the Apostle John, wrote the following sentence. For your merchants were the great men of the earth, for by your sorcery, all the nations were deceived. Now, the Greek word translated sorcery is pharmakia, Strong's 5331, from which we get the word pharmaceutical. It means the use of medicine, drugs, or spells. We might better translate this sentence in contemporary terms as the following. Your billionaires were the great merchants of the earth, for by your pharmaceuticals, all the countries were spellbound, and deceived. You know, it's a pretty big coincidence that God said pharmaceuticals would factor into the end times, and he said it almost 2,000 years ago, particularly since the context of that passage is the world's economic and political system leading up to the end of the age. It's really the destruction of the world's economic and political system. Isn't America the world's leading economic and political superpower? You know, if nothing else, this sentence, this little passage in the Bible, should give Christians pause when it comes to embracing untested, unproven pharmaceutical agents in response to intensive media hype. So here's the application, and we're going to wrap this up. These are the things that I don't read in Scripture, and I think it's important to acknowledge them. I don't read that we should—I'm going to make this personal. This is what I shouldn't be doing for myself. I should not bury my head in the sand. I should not refuse to see things that are going around, on around me because I don't want to look at them. I should not be deceived. I should not obey delusions. I should recognize delusions. I shouldn't go along with them. I should not abide by the phrase that I really detest, let go, let God, which means I'm not going to have anything to do with this. I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to let God take care of it. The Bible says that we are not to tempt the Lord our God. Well, when we say let go, let God, what are we doing? We are assuming that God is going to take care of our problems for us. And it seems to me that that is tempting God. That is asking or demanding that God take care of things for us so that we don't have to do it ourselves. 
I, I don't see that that is a biblical expression. I don't see that we're supposed to go along to get along. That, that is a common practical thing that people do because they don't want to cause any trouble. The Bible doesn't say that. It doesn't say, I haven't read it. And if somebody knows where it is, just let me know. I haven't read that half righteous is better than um, no righteous. Uh, you know, that we can be righteous sometimes, but when we elect that we're going to not be righteous, then that's okay because we're half righteous and we're halfway there. And I haven't read that we should in terror flee to the wilderness and hide under, under a rock. That's not what Christians do either. We don't flee and we don't hide. We have to face these things. God said, yes, some people are going to flee to the wilderness, but that's a small group of people, you know, Jewish people in the end times. Most of us, the Christians, we're not supposed to do that. So application one, we don't hide. A lamp is not hidden under a peck measure. That's a basket, right? So if you want the light to shine, you don't put it under something and hide it. Application two, we discern. We gather info and we make assessments and we make conclusions. And the biblical passage, 1 Kings 3.9, that we may discern between good and evil. That's why we discern. We need to tell the difference. Application three, we stand for righteousness. For you bless the righteous, O Lord, Psalm 5.12. And application, the final application, application four, we stand against evil. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, Proverbs 8.13. We don't let evil conquer us. At least we don't, we don't let evil conquer. Evil might conquer us in the, in the temporary uh, physical sense. But we don't let it happen. We resist it. So next week, we're going to try to look into some potentially evil things and other potentially evil things that might be going on in our society. And we're going to ask the question, well, how do we recognize if it's evil? I mean, now we've recognized who our enemy is. How do we recognize when there's something evil going on? It looks like the answer should be simple, but it's really not. Because look around you. There's a lot of things that the Christian would say, boy, these things look really evil, but the world doesn't seem to agree. The world thinks that they're just fine. So we need to make sure that the world doesn't influence us and we're able to recognize these things. So until then, God bless, and we will see how long the satanic powers of the world allow this podcast to stay up. Until next time, stay strong and fight for God. 